You're listening to the First Corinthians When Immaturity Meets Worldliness series preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll begin reading at verse number 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. <clears throat> These are some of the most powerful verses in all of 1 Corinthians. The truth is, they speak for themselves. We could leave today pondering these verses, and it would be a great blessing. But we're not going to pack up quite yet. We want to work our way through this passage of Scripture. I don't know that I've ever done a Christian funeral and not used this portion of Scripture at the graveside committal service. Unfortunately for most of us, the only time that we think through these verses are at a graveside service, and then they're soon forgotten. We live in a strange world today. We live in a world today where there's very little solitude, there's very little reflection, there's very little silence. The truth is, silence makes us uncomfortable. And so we fill our life with distractions. We... we, have noise and entertainment and music and movies and stuff. So we don't have to think. We don't have to reflect, especially when it comes to the area of death. But it's imperative that we do. Listen to the words of the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 7, verse 2. He says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. He says, listen, it's better to go to a house where death has occurred, to ponder, to think, than going to the party. Because the wise man, the living, will lay it to heart. And I don't think we truly know how to live until we come to grips with death. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is to bring this truth, the truth of this text, to the forefront of our minds. I want you to think about what's being said And then I want us to behave accordingly to the text. In light of what we read and think about this morning, there should be a response. And so that's our end game today. Paul is answering the question of verse 35 here in our text. He says, but some man will say, how are the dead raised and with what body do they come? 
And apparently there were those in Corinth again asking the question, how can those who have died, how can this corpse that was buried, how can they stand up again in a body? And Paul says, I want you to know something. It is possible, and God has given us evidence of that in everyday life. Transformation can occur, and he gives us the example of the seed. And I hope and pray this morning that none of us will ever look at a seed again the same way after what we learned last week. We learn that life comes from death. And that which is sown is not identical to that which is grown, but related to it. We can plant a strawberry seed, and in essence, it is a strawberry. But what comes forth, it's not just a bunch of seeds. It's a strawberry, and it's better. And so the truth that Paul is conveying in that passage is that God chooses to give the seed a different body. And then as he works his way through, he says that God is not restricted in what kind of body he can give to any creation. He says there are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, that of flesh and of fish and of feathers and fur. And then there are heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. There's a variety that God has given each of those bodies, and there's a value and glory to them. And so he says this body is suited for earthly living, but it's not equipped for the eternal. And like the seed, for those who die, they must be changed. And now we come to verse 51 of our text. And Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now remember, when, when the Bible speaks about a mystery, he's not speaking about Scooby-Doo and the mystery machine, or Agatha Christie, or Mary Higgins Clark, or Stephen King. When he talks about a mystery, he is talking about divine truth, formerly not disclosed, but now it's revealed. It was something previously unknown, and now it's being made known. And so Paul says, behold, I want to show you a mystery. I'm going to reveal something that maybe you did not know. Of course you didn't know. He says, we shall not all sleep. And before I get to the crux of what he's saying in that, that statement, Again, I love how Paul speaks of the Christian's death like sleep. No one other than a two-year-old at nap time is terrified of sleep. We understand that our body just falls asleep, and when we wake up, we wake up. My oldest son was famous for getting into the vehicle, and as soon as the car went down the road, he'd fall asleep. So age would get in the car, and we'd, We'd have it for vacation, and right when we got to the 401, he'd be asleep. We'd get to the border. He'd wake up and like, oh, where am I at? Like, where at the border? We'd cross the border. He'd fall asleep again, and in several hours, he'd wake up again, and we're at Cracker Barrel. He's like, where are we at? It's like Cracker Barrel. He'd fall asleep again, and after a long period of time, wake up and be in Florida. Like, how did I get here? Well, you've been sleeping the whole time, and you fell asleep, and you woke up in a different place. And Paul says for the believer, this is exactly what death is like. We fall asleep, and we wake up in Disney. And that's what he's speaking of. And so he says, we shall not all sleep. I want to show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. I said last week that the stats are in that 10 out of 10 people die, that you're not getting off this planet alive. But there is an exception. That's not completely true because Paul says there is an exception. He says, we shall not all sleep. 
And what he's speaking of here is the second coming of Christ. We, we know of this second coming from Acts chapter 1 where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's giving them the commission again. And as he's speaking, he's done now and he's ascending up to heaven physically, bodily ascending to heaven, and they're standing there gazing at him as, he, as he's taken away in a cloud, and they, they sort of just stare, stare there. And the two men, the angels, say, you men of Galilee, why are you gazing up to heaven? This same Jesus that was taken in this manner will come back the same way. And so we, we know this, and Paul is saying, uh, along with Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that, that Christ Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, those who died and were buried must be transformed like a seed. There will be transformation for them. But those who are alive, when he comes, will be transformed as well, but it will be in an instant. And so he describes this now in verse number 52. He says, in a moment. The word moment is atom. Not Adam and Eve, but atom, like neutron, proton. It is the smallest amount of time imaginable. He says, when Christ returns, those who are alive will be changed in a moment. Then he says, in the twinkling of an eye. That word twinkling is interesting. It, it literally means to jerk. I don't know if you've experienced this. I don't know if this is just for me, but, but almost every night when I fall asleep, as I begin to doze off, my eyes close, and, and within seconds of falling to sleep, I dream that I'm falling off the sofa, I'm falling out of bed, I'm falling out of a car, I'm falling out of a building, and I just jerk, I mean violently jerk, like I'm, I'm about to fall and hit the ground, and it terrifies my wife. And after the years, she's been accustomed to that, and now she just thinks, well, well here comes the jerk. Um, and, and not like you think. So it's a jerk. It's in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It's a jerk. And in a blink, we will be changed and transformed. And then he says at the last trump, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And so in verse 53, he says now to us, we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And what he's telling us is because this frail body cannot take part in the reign of God as we are, we need a new body. This corruptible, this thing that perishes, must put on incorruption. It, it must change. And that word literally means getting dressed, to put on. There are times when my wife and I'm going to go someplace, and, and I'll be ready to go, and I'll be downstairs, and she'll come down, and she'll look at me, and she'll say, are you wearing that? <laughs> and I'll say, not now. Right? There will change. And Paul says, in this moment, we will be changed. Verse 54, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up. In victory. He says, when this happens, we will deal with death. And now look at verse 55. Because Paul starts to do something very interesting here. It's almost as if he's thinking about this truth of death being swallowed up, and now he breaks out in this glorious song, and he's he's literally taunting death. Oh death, where is thy sting? Oh grave, where is thy victory? 
Now he begins to talk about the reality of death, this great enemy. He says, the sting of death. The sting of death. Um, years ago, we had, well, this was probably now 12, 11 years ago, on the side of our property where the golf course is at, it was just overrun by bushes and shrubs and, and dead trees. And so we had a project to clear that out. And, and people in the church would take turns at doing that. And, and one day, uh, Gregory, David, and I were out clearing the, the shrubs and, and uh, the mess out there. And David must have been about, I don't know, he's probably about four years old. You say, wait a minute, your four-year-old was working? Yes, let me tell you something. Four-year-olds can work. And 14-year-olds can work, and they should work. Listen, parents, you do your children a disservice by not allowing them to work, to work with you, to work alongside you. They can pick up their clothes. They can take out the trash. They can clean their room. And if you don't help them understand that and teach them good work ethics, you will raise a 40-year-old child that will be living on your sofa in their underwear, eating chips, not being productive. Work. All right? I don't know where we're at now, but it's talking about work. Okay, so we were working out there, and we, we had the, the riding mower, and Greg was helping there, and then we had the, the hedge trimmers out there, the electric hedge trimmers, and we're working away, and uh, in the middle of that, David pulled up this clump of grass, and when he did, he pulled up a bee's nest, or yellow jackets, and they were mad. And so they start singing David, and David starts to scream. And I don't know if the hookers are here this morning, and, and they were working in the back, and I think that they heard David screaming, and they thought he was getting spanked for not working hard enough, I, I suppose. And so it's like, ah, so he's screaming, and I just picked him up, and I start running toward the house, and I'm, as I'm holding him, these bees were singing him, and they were singing me, and so I start yelling for Kim, now, Kim is a wonderful mother of boys, um, but, but her mind is very creative and active, and, and she's got somewhat of an imagination, and so whenever there's um, some kind of problem, she already has the kids as being, you know, they're already dead and buried, and so she knew that we were out there with, you know, these trimmers, and so she sees me running with David, and she sort of just thinks that by this time he's cut off both of his legs and his hands, and, and he's just done. And she's not even opening the door. I had to run and say, listen, he got stung by a bee. It was painful. And finally she opened the door, and we were treated. If you're wondering what happened to Greg, Gregory's just like his mother. He sat on the tractor and covered his ears and closed his eyes. Of course, nothing bad happens when you cover your ears and close your eyes. But the sting, this malevolent insect that bites. He says, death has a sting. Although we as Christians sleep, and, and Paul describes it as sleep, he still recognizes death as a great enemy. Because when our body dies, it looks as if we have been defeated. And we say all these platitudes, you know, oh, they're in a better place, and certainly that's true. Sometimes we say things that maybe we shouldn't. I mean, they look great. They look so good. The fact is, they're dead. One of our friends was going through the line and giving his condolences, and, and someone asked him how he was doing. He said, well, at least I'm this side of the grass. I'm on this side of the grass. And uh, then Ken just sort of walked through the line, didn't lift up his head again. We, we say some dumb things, but the truth is, 
when we go to a funeral and the casket's closed and we go back and eat our egg salad sandwiches and we go home at night, we realize that we have known and suffered loss. Death is destructive. It severs relationships. It disrupts families and friends. It causes grief and pain. And Paul acknowledges that death has a sting. The sting of death is sin because the wages of sin is death. All of us, if the Lord tarries his coming, we will die and we will die because the wages of our sin is death. And then he says the strength of sin is law. Listen, the law of God exposes our sinfulness. And when the law is shown on our hearts and our lives, it exposes the facts that we are liars and thieves, we are fornicators, we are lustful, we are perverted, we lie, we steal, we cheat, we're greedy, we, we gossip, and it exposes our sin. It exposes our sin before a holy and righteous God, and the law condemns us. Is it any wonder that Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that for a lifetime we are in bondage to the fear of death? Because death does, does have a sting. It's sin. And the strength of sin is a law. But here's how Paul, and here's why Paul can taunt death. He says, but thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, thankfully, that which we could not do for ourselves has been done by God through Jesus Christ. And this morning, although death has a sting, the Bible makes it clear that because of Jesus Christ, death's power to invoke fear and inflict suffering is plucked out. Jesus Christ took the sting of death and he swallowed up death in victory. And this morning, those who know Christ, death is powerless over the dead. And death is powerless over the living. And by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was the beginning of the end of death. It was set in motion. It was defeated, and someday it will be defeated. And this morning, if you are in Christ, you will be victorious over death. And if you are not in Christ, you will feel the sting of death. And you will feel the weight of your sin before a holy and righteous God. You must repent. And Paul rejoices that thankfully... What we could not do for ourselves, God did for us through the person of Jesus Christ. And now verse 58. Therefore, therefore, if you've been coming to our church for any length of time, you understand that that word therefore means what? Yeah. It means in light of everything that I just said. And so let me remind you of what Paul just said. He started with the gospel that the gospel is the fact that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried, and that he rose again, according to the scriptures. That this testimony is true. We have eyewitnesses. That our faith is not in vain. That our preaching is not in vain. That we shall see our loved ones again, because Christ is risen. That those who died will be transformed. Their bodies will they'll have a new body. And those of us who are living, when he comes, will be transformed in an instant, in a moment, death will be swallowed up in victory. And Paul says in light of this, this correct theology, that it should lead us to a proper behavior. These truths ought to change our present condition. And here's how they change. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, my beloved sister, 
again, it, it's, it's amazing how Paul speaks to the Corinthian believers as, as difficult as they have been, as troublesome as, as the, the issues that Paul had to deal with. He still sees them as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, my brother, my sister, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And he says, in light of what I just said, the believer should be steadfast. It, it means let nothing move you. It, it has the idea that we will not be shaken. It doesn't mean that we won't have trouble. It doesn't mean that we, we won't have difficulties. It won't, doesn't mean that we, we don't even you know, work through this process of trying to figure things out at times. It, it doesn't mean that, but it means that when, when life happens and we're in the midst of it, our core, our faith is settled. It is solid. We will not be shaken. And then he says, always giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. In light of the truth that we have just heard, this should be the character of the life of the believer. Now, as I look at the audience this morning, um, I know the majority of folks here, and I would venture to say that the majority of people here would say this morning, I believe exactly what we've talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. I, I believe that to be true. I believe that that, that that is right. It's accurate. I believe that theology. So then the question is this. Do our lives, do our goals, do our dreams, do our actions reveal that we believe that truth? Is our life now this morning in light of what Paul has just instructed us in this great mystery? Would we be characterized as being unmovable, being unshaken? We live in a sick culture today. Just turn on the news, watch the reports, see what's happening around us. And where are the men and the women and the teenagers who are standing against the culture, who are not being swept away by, by their surroundings. Listen to me. Any dead fish can float downstream. Is our life characterized by men and women and teenagers who are solid in their faith and their core beliefs that, that aren't shaken when, when the world says go this way or that way or ridicules or makes fun of us? For many of us, we are emotional roller coaster rides. We are easily discouraged. This Sunday, we're excited about Jesus, and then for three weeks, we don't see you around. We're shaken. We ought not be. Listen to me. If you're standing for righteousness, you will be persecuted. There will be times in your life, as parents, your kids won't like you. And if your kids don't like you, chances are you're being a good parent and telling them, no, this is not the direction we're headed. This is not what we do. This is not what we believe. You can't do that. There will be times in your life that your coworkers will misunderstand you, that they'll think you're strange. There will be times in your life that your friends will abandon you. And I'm not talking about abandoning you because you're odd or you're weird or you're, you're abrasive. If that happens, you need to learn how to win friends and influence people. But I'm talking about standing for truth, for your core values. These things will happen. And when they happen, we should be willing to stand alone for righteousness. We should not be shaken in light of this truth. 
And then he says, always giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. You know, we give ourselves to our jobs, our careers, our pleasure, our vacation, our stuff. And then what we do is whatever's left over then, we might just give that to the Lord. Would our lives be characterized by actively finding ways to promote his kingdom? Do we look for creative ways to share our faith within our homes, our places of work, our neighborhoods, with our family? How, how are we spending our money? Is everything that we get spent on our own comfort and our own stuff, never thinking about furthering the kingdom of God? He says, this truth should transform us. It should translate into a life that is unshaken and a life that is always giving itself to the work of the Lord. Now, as I reflected on this passage of Scripture and thought in my own life, you know, you, you ask yourself the question, you know, why is it then that, that I do believe this truth, I say I do, Yet I'm not sure that I'm always characterized by being steadfast and unshaken and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I guess maybe the easiest answer, and I want to be careful with this, because you say, well, you just don't believe it. Maybe there's truth to that. Maybe we have this mental assent to this truth, and yet in our hearts we don't believe it. And that, and that may very well be happening. Maybe this morning we say we believe, and we give mental assent to this belief, but somehow, some way, it's not penetrated our hearts. And, and that certainly is possible. But maybe it's just distraction. Maybe in this world that we live in, in this hemisphere, we're like kids with ADD. I mean, it's like, oh, a butterfly here, something shiny here. And we, we, we know these things to be true, and yet we're so easily distracted by the things of this world that we are shaken and we're not busy for the kingdom of God. Maybe the things that we have have become a distraction and a curse. I wonder if our Indian brothers are as distracted as we are. I wonder if our Iraqi sisters in Christ are as distracted as we are. Maybe for some of us it's just being distracted that our lives aren't really transformed by this truth. That might be the case. Well, there might be something else happening here, and I, I think it's interesting as we come to the conclusion of chapter 15 that Paul says at the very end, therefore, my beloved brother, sister, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, he says, now, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And what Paul has done now is he's gone full circle. Do you remember back in verses 12 through 19, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain, our faith is vain, what we do is vain, we of all people are most miserable, we should be pitied because everything that we hold dear is vain, it's empty, it's wasted, it's worthless, it means nothing. And yet here what he does at the very end of this chapter is he says this, now let me tell you what is not vain, what is not empty, what is not wasted, everything we do for Christ truly does matter. It matters. And maybe for some of us this morning, we doubt that to be true. We doubt that when we do things for Christ, it really does matter for eternity. Sometimes we think we're just wasting our life for Christ. 
You know, I just can't stand alone for four years of high school. It's just so hard and difficult, or I can't stand alone um, for 30, 40, 50 years, or I just can't forego upward mobility or the accumulation of stuff or being comfortable, you know, because I, I, it's important. I just want to waste my life. And you know, if I do this for Christ, if I do this for the kingdom, I'm just not sure. I doubt that it's worth it. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, believer, stop for a second. All these other things will pass. They will end. But everything that you do for Christ and his kingdom, it is not in vain. It's not. It is the only thing that lasts for eternity. We sang the song this morning. Every tear we wipe away, everything we do in his name and for his kingdom, it does matter. And so this morning, I think what we ought to do is, when we come to a portion like this, we ought to think about it. You ought to run this verse through your mind as often as you can, not just at a grave site, but all the time. Knowing that God has been victorious over death, hell, and the grave. He's alive and well. He is coming again. We will be transformed. If we die before that time, we will be resurrected in a glorious body, and death will be swallowed up. Therefore, we ought to be unmovable not shaken, and always abounding to do God's work because what we do is not in vain. I'll close with this quote from Francis Chan. He says this, Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. For many of us this morning, we are succeeding in life. But we're succeeding in life with things that in the big picture really don't matter. And the thing that does matter is the kingdom of Christ and working for him. And so let us take this to heart and spend our life serving our Savior. Let's pray.